your behaviors indicate what your unconscious beliefs are because we can't go scuba diving put our heads under the ocean otherwise it's conscious we mm. are unconscious but your actions will show you so if every single time you hit your ideal weight goals for example and you hit your fitness goals and you yep yeah, I, I got to where i want to go to and then within a week or two you're you're binging or you're back to where you originally were before you started your your health goal whatever it may have been then it's showing okay my actions aren't aligning with what i actually want every mm. single time i get to six pack and it lasts for about a month and i'm back to one pack again it's going there is an unconscious core belief regarding my physical health yeah if finances every single time i hit a certain number with my savings and then i just splurge or i may donate to a charity which seems more of like an innocent type of splurge but whatever i'm doing brings me back to where i started it's showing there's a core belief there Welcome to The Balance Theory, a podcast aimed at arming you with tools and tips so that you are well equipped to not only identify and define, but own your own definition of balance. I'm your host, Erica, and thank you for joining me today. Hey, balancers, and welcome back to episode 53 of The Balance Theory podcast. I just want to start off today's episode by thanking everyone who reached out to me after last week's drop. I had a lot of really positive feedback. So I'm really glad to hear you guys enjoyed that episode. It was something I've been meaning to chat about for a while. And I think we can all benefit from some efficiency tips here and there. So thank you so much to everyone who did reach out. I did just want to share one beautiful review that I've received lately. And as always, these always absolutely make my day and really help us grow as an independent podcast. So if you do have a little bit of time and can jump over to Apple Podcasts, you can just scroll to the bottom of all the episodes and leave us your thoughts there, share the love. But I just wanted to start off one from Says DS and it says, amazing way to start the day. The perfect podcast he start your day with. Always providing a great sense of motivation and positive energy. Each week has inspired me and ready to balance what's ahead. So thank you for that glowing five-star review. And I look forward to reading all your other thoughts to come. Now, today's episode is one I'm really excited about. You may not recognize who she is from the title, but Chantelle is actually my therapist. So a lot of you would hear me go on and on about things I've learned in therapy, the reasons why I love it so much. And today I'm actually going to open up that world to you and show you exactly why and what I've learned in this space an incredible woman that's helped me in my own journey and in that part of my life. And I cannot thank her enough. And I am so grateful that she took the time out of her uber busy schedule to chat with me. And I know you guys are going to get so much out of today. So get those pen or notepads ready to go. But a little bit about Chantelle. So she's an interventionist and specialist counselor and holds a wealth of experience in the addiction recovery sector internationally with over a decade of experience immersed in the field of rehabilitation. Her mission and passion is to accompany her her clients along a journey of self-discovery and self-mastery. She did have a shift in her career. So she went from specializing in addiction and then really moved into more high performance, which is sort of where our paths crossed. And honestly, there is so much that we spoke about today. So I'm going to try and keep this summary super brief, but get ready. And I hope you're excited because there's a lot to take from today's drop. So we start off with a little chat about what addiction and high performance have in common, which you'll be really surprised to hear. We talk about the difference between an addictive personality and an addiction. Then we dive into this massive, massive area called core beliefs. So basically what is in our conscious mind we know of, what's in our subconscious mind we don't know of. And that's where our core beliefs sit. We go through how to actually unpack those and how those core beliefs have such a big impact on our progress in life. 
We also talk about here how those core beliefs are really conducive to self-regulating and a byproduct of that is limiting beliefs, which I'm sure a lot of you would have heard of. It's a little bit of a buzzword at the moment, but we also chat about how you can spot and identify those limiting beliefs, which I know a lot of you are going to find super helpful. We talk about some common misconceptions when it comes to therapy. She introduces a concept which I'm obsessed with, which is called accepting your humanity, basically challenging that belief that we have to be perfect with no flaws. Chantelle also shares some really practical tips on how to deal with negative thoughts, provides a couple visualizations, and she shares some incredible stories and analogies, which I know you're all going to love. Get ready to send this on to a loved one because I know so many people are going to love today's episode. Or you can just take a screenshot and tag us at The Balance Theory. Pop it on your story. Let me know what your biggest takeaways were. Or you can just shoot me a DM and say hi as well. Can't wait to hear your thoughts and enjoy today's episode. Okay, now today's guest is someone a lot of you will have heard me talk about. I've either paraphrased slash maybe butchered a lot of what she's taught me. I have none other than my own therapist, Chantelle, on today, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining me on the Balance Series. Welcome. Thank you so much, Eric. I'm very excited to be here with you. <laughs> Likewise. And it's nice to have the shoe on the other foot. Normally, you're the one inviting me to the Zoom calls and curating the whole session. So you get to sit back and relax and let me do the question asking for once in a while. <laughs> Nice. I got my comfy chair. Let's go for it. Ready to go. So for those of you who don't know you uh, and don't know, I guess, about the work you do, can you share a little bit about that and, and what you're kind of specializing in at this point? Yeah, so I am a rehabilitation counselor. What I specialize in is particularly addictive personalities and high performance. I've been doing that for about eight years, but I've been in the addiction recovery space for about 12 years. So what actually drew you to the space and becoming a rehabilitation counsellor and then specifically into addiction? Uh, mild curiosity. So it wasn't something that I felt particularly passionate or drawn to initially, which is interesting. I was flicking through the UAC guide when I was in high school and I saw uh, what was back then called a Bachelor of Health Science Rehabilitation Counselling. Now it's changed. Now it's called a Master's of Rehab Counselling and you have to do a different, uh, I think maybe the same bachelor's, but now that's the new degree name. And the way they described it is you're working with populations who've either had a physical injury or a psychological injury or a disadvantage or a disability in life. And you're helping them reintegrate, reenter the community and life and live a fulfilled life. So you do counseling and you case manage with other allied health, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the examples they gave was addiction, um, which in retrospect, I think was a bit misleading for the degree itself because addiction was a tiny, tiny part. It was just an elective. Everything else was like vocational rehabilitation. Um, most rehab counsellors don't work in addiction. Most of them in Australia and the UK work under the work cover umbrella. So if someone has a physical injury or a psychological injury, we work with them, we work with people around them and we're getting them back into life, really. My passion, I wouldn't even say it was a passion because it was an interest. It was a mild curiosity back then is I saw people in my life had addictions and I thought, oh, they're beautiful people. They've got kind hearts. They're not accessing services. Are there any services? So it was more curiosity. And I went into the degree to see if I could help people that I knew that had addictions. It wasn't until my fourth year placement, which I did in Canada at a rehab, that I had exposure to addiction recovery like in the workplace. And that's when my heart just lit on fire. That's when passion really grew. I, I saw it. I said, I want to do this until I die. Um, you just see humanity at its raw, real, the core of its heart completely and that's when I was like I just want to open the addiction recovery space um didn't think anything of high performance it was more addiction recovery absolutely love it 
came to Sydney, spent a few years working in residential non-profit rehabs, long-term rehabs, and I saw a couple of uh, gaps. And from those gaps, there were three in particular that then I developed services for, and the third one was high performance. The first one was seeing cultural, uh, there were gaps for cultural communities that weren't accessing services, so co-founded a non-profit rehab, which is many years ago, just still going in Western Sydney. Um, then the second one was people accessing services too late. So then working, by the time they lost everything, so working with families for an intervention model, which we linked up with different treatment facilities to provide interventions with families to then get their loved ones into treatment. Then the third one is which what my main focus is now. We're seeing the link with talent and addictive personalities, which was disproportionate in all the treatment facilities I was in. And that's when I started to look more into people with addictive personalities who are high performers. And around the same time, a few things happened. I had a friend of mine who was an athlete who came to me for addiction counseling. And at the time I didn't believe in outpatient counseling for addiction. So I was like, nope, you gotta to go to rehab. And he was like, Chantel, I can't, I, this needs to be external. And then around the same time working with him, there was a well-known football player who died and he had a gambling addiction. And so things were coming to my awareness. Again, this is a problem in the sporting world. And then I was looking at um, around the same time, a few people in the community reached out for outpatient counseling for addictions. And I was seeing the clients that were getting really good results and the clients that weren't getting good results. And the ones that were getting good results were either in the sporting space or the corporate space. And the ones that weren't getting good results, they were in different industries, but the commonality was discipline. It was an area where they had discipline. And so if they had really good self-discipline, either in the corporate space or the sporting space, they were doing really, really well in the recovery space. So my mind at the time, because I didn't know the science behind addictive personalities and high performance at that time, was I can help more people if I actually focus on high performers because they get it much quicker and then we can access more people. It's not, you're not having to put as many resources and much time for a minimal result. So that was how it started. And then over eight years, it really unfolded. So interesting. And I know actually we had a module and you were telling me about addictive personalities and an addiction and the difference between them. And I thought that this was so interesting because when you come to think of it, a lot of high performers have addictive personalities. They're addicted to that peak performance. They're addicted to, you know, that flow and and all those sorts of things. So can you talk to me a little bit about the difference between the two? Because I was really interested when you explained this to me a couple of weeks ago. Yes. So an addictive personality has nothing to do with an addiction. So I'll give you the definition. We can be predisposed, but I'll explain that. So an addiction has two criteria for it to be an addiction. It's something I've tried to stop and I can't, and it's harming me in some way. I'm going to give an example. Breathing. Try and stop breathing. I can't stop breathing. So criteria one fulfilled. Is breathing harming me? No. So it's not an addiction. If I was a smoker and I tried to stop smoking and I can't, condition one fulfilled. Is smoking harming me? Yes. Addiction. This isn't just the obvious addictions. This could be if I try to stop gossiping and I can't, I'm always gossiping, condition my fulfilled. Is gossiping harming me? Yeah, it's damaging my relationships, my friendships, my reputation. So gossiping, addiction. There are many things that are addictive behaviours, even emotions, addictive emotions, that mm-hmm. we try and stop when we can't and they're harming us. That's an addiction. Yeah, like scrolling on, scrolling on social media, stuff like that. Yeah, and then losing track of time, not sleeping properly. It's, it's causing harm and I can't stop. If I can't stop, it's not also a short term. Have I been able to stop for longer than a year? Because we can do things uh, like binge purge cycles. It's like, oh, I'll go a really good time where I 
don't touch it. And then I go really, really hard. Yeah. Maybe all the time I don't touch it and then I go really hard. So if you've had a really long stint where you're able to stop beyond a year, that's when you know about conditional one. Now that's an addiction. If we're looking at an addictive personality, this is something that's genetic. And this is something that many studies have shown this. They've had twins that have grown up in different environments, et cetera, et cetera. It has to do with our brain and the way our brain is wired. When we have addictive personalities, we use our reward system much more than others. We're more driven to experience dopamine. Dopamine is the chemical that makes us feel really good. It's the euphoric chemical. It's not the happiness chemical. It's the pleasure chemical. So it's like, ah, oh, that's amazing. It's dopamine. When we have addictive personalities, we love dopamine. That's as simple as it is. Our brains are wired in a certain way. We just love dopamine. doesn't mean we have an addiction. And as you probably know, Erica, in our chats in the past, you could probably tell us what would possibly lead it to an addiction. But we do have like 80-something modules, so you don't remember all of them. But do you remember <laughs> core beliefs? Are we, we're talking about core beliefs? Yes. Which come from our environment. So to explain the link between addictive personalities and addiction, I'm going to explain something else on the side, which is now going to come connect. You'll all, you'll all start to learn that Chantel loves her tangents and her little pathways, <laughs> and then she comes back full circle. <laughs> That's how it works. So the example I give, imagine we're looking at a giant jigsaw puzzle and we're just breaking down little puzzle pieces. They'll connect eventually. Because <laughs> the brain, Erica, is amazing. We have more neurons in one brain than there are stars in the entire universe. So we Incredible. have really complex brains. And to try and explain it just in one thread is so impossible and wouldn't do it justice so that's why we explain little puzzle pieces and then you'll see connection points love it the brain is really exciting but i'll just park my excitement to the side <laughs> so to do one of the little puzzle pieces everyone's probably heard of the conscious and the unconscious or the subconscious and the metaphor i like to give for that is the ocean so if i was sitting in a little rowboat on the surface of the ocean everything i see above the water represents my conscious mind it's what i am aware of i can see what is there i can see another boat i can see a seagull so things that i know about myself i know that i have hazel eyes i was born in beirut and i love chocolate so that represents a seagull another boat and the sunset things i consciously know what is underneath the ocean it could be nemo dory a shipwreck sharks dolphins we don't know what's down there i can't see what's underneath the water that represents my subconscious so I can't tell you, Erica, what's in my subconscious. I couldn't, or it would be conscious. I can't actually tell you what's there. And if I'm sitting in that rowboat and I want to go the direction of the sunrise, am I going to go there because I want to? Or am I going to go where the current's taking me? Now keep in mind the rowboat has no sail, it has no paddles, it hasn't got an engine, it's just an empty rowboat. Am I going to go where I want to or am I going to go where the current's taking me? I have no choice, got to go with the current. Is the current above the surface or underneath? underneath in your subconscious this is familiar huh <laughs> i've heard these once or twice before <laughs> so i'm going where the current's taking me and the current's coming from my subconscious so then we go okay it's coming from underneath but what creates that current what is it and so we put a little magnifying glass at the current the undercurrent the things called core beliefs and different schools of thought call it different things but i call them core beliefs and if anyone's ever watched the pixar movie inside out where you see the girl that's run away from home and all the emojis in her head. They're like the, the core memories that she has in her head. I mean, we have a lot more than just four of them. We have many. And what a core belief is, what the heck is a core belief? It's a memory. It's a memory that I have, but this is the key. The memory is not based on truth. The memory is based on my perception. And it has two parts. 
It has in that memory, the feeling I felt at the time, and then the meaning, the story that my mind made at the time. So I'm going to make up an example. Let's imagine I'm four years old and my mom's trying to fall pregnant. She struggles and then she finally falls pregnant and then she has a miscarriage six months in. And then she goes to a deep depression. As a four-year-old, my memory would be, mom got a bit chubby, now she's really sad, she gives me no hugs. So the memory I have, the emotion I am feeling is probably shame. And the meaning I've given it is I'm unlovable. There's something wrong with me. I don't understand the miscarriage. I don't understand depression. I don't get that. I just get She's not hugging me, so there's something wrong with me. And the feeling is shame. This is not based on truth. This is my perception. It is in my unconscious mind. Shame is too big of a feeling for me to feel back then. So I probably would have pushed it down, not knowing how to process that, played with my Legos. And what happens to, oh, we'll get to that later, the whole balloon underwater. But that's, that's a core belief. So with the core belief, that's in my subconscious mind. Now, okay, you got to remind me why I was actually saying that. Where was I going with this one? We were going uh, <laughs> with addictive personalities when they can cross over and become addiction. Yeah. Yes. So we have different balances, uh, the balance theory. Got to throw unhealthy. it in. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> unhealthy core beliefs. So you have some people that will have a lot of really healthy and just some unhealthy. Some will have a bit of a mid-range and some will have a lot more unhealthy and some healthy core beliefs. And it is a lottery. It's, you can have the absolute best environment that can do its best to give you really good, healthy core beliefs, but you can have different conversations with neighbors. You can read different books. You can watch a different movie and core beliefs will come in. So these are things that it's sheer luck. You could have identical triplets and I do a whole thing on this. They grow up in an identical environment. They can still have different core beliefs because our experiences will never be identical. And our experiences create our core beliefs. And is there a certain is there a certain age by which the most of our core beliefs are formed? Like, is there sort of a cutoff, or is it an ongoing process? The younger we are, the the stronger the core beliefs are, because that's when our personality is forming. So this even can begin in terms of brain development in the womb. So as you're growing, it can be really, really, really young. Uh, uh, a certain part of our brain that's quite important doesn't stop growing until about twenty four. So yeah. from point of conception up until 24 years old, that's when things are forming. But the younger we are, the stronger they are. Interesting. So talk to me now about the three, or two, two twins, three twins, right? You, and, and how their environment and their core beliefs can mean that some of them may have addictive personalities, but not addictions. And when the barrier can be crossed between them, because I love this stuff. So interesting. So let's do the triplet story. So we've got three triplets, uh, identical triplets. So genetically, they're completely identical, identical environment. They grew up in the same room, same triple bunk bed, same group of friends, same class at school. Everything's identical, but their experiences are never identical. So for example, one triplet, he might read a book and in this book, the hero of the story goes through a lot of adversity, a lot of struggle. But at the end of that adversity and struggle, it makes him stronger and he achieves great things. So there's a, a message in his mind that adversity equals strength. It creates resilience. It's a positive association with adversity. Then he may have his brother who watch a movie and the hero in this movie goes through a lot of adversity and struggle and dies in the end and loses everything because he's dead. So his association is struggle will kill you. It's a really bad thing. Two very, very different core beliefs regarding struggle, even though their environments are identical. So let's say triplet number one, just through chance, his core beliefs, 
has a vast majority are really, really healthy and only a small amount are unhealthy. The middle triplet, even balance. The last triplet, some healthy core beliefs, but a lot more unhealthy core beliefs. If you're looking at the trajectory of their lives, triplet number one, We'll have a lot of progression. We'll move towards these goals because that current in the ocean is pushing forward. But then he's going to have some speed bumps because no one has no unhealthy core beliefs. So he'll have some speed bumps, but then he'll overcome them, keep going. Some speed bumps, overcome them, keep going. And he gets pretty far with achieving his goals, whatever he sets his mind to. He might be the CEO of Google. He might have 30 kids. He might have a six-pack, whatever his goals might be. He's achieved <laughs> them. There's been some setbacks, but he's gotten there. You then have the middle range where there's quite an even balance with the middle triplet. Achieve some goals, some setbacks, some goals, some setbacks. So there's some traction, but there's some pullback as well. So there's not a huge accomplishment, but there isn't huge drama either. It's just a pretty chill, balanced life. Then you have the last triplet. He moves forward 20 steps back, moves forward 20 steps back. No matter how hard he tries to move forward, he keeps regressing and going backwards, even though he really, really wants to move forward. He now may be struggling with a heroin addiction. He is cut off from all his loved ones. He's probably homeless. Uh, there's probably a lot of psychological damage and health issues. If you're looking at where the three of these triplets have landed in life, they're in very different places. But not a single one of them is more intelligent than the other. Not a single one of them is more loving than the other. They're, they're equal. The only difference is their core beliefs were different and they didn't get to pick it. So when we really see that, we have a lot of compassion and we lose judgment, not just for others, but especially for ourselves. Mm. Because when we see our own unconscious setbacks, our little speed bumps, we go, okay, there's a core belief in them that's unhealthy. So yep. I'm open for this to pop up and we can get into this a bit later. But we don't judge ourselves as harshly and we don't judge others as harshly either because we yep. realize this is about core beliefs and they didn't help. They didn't pick it. It was like a lottery. So that's the triplets. But now to go to back to your original question with how could an addictive personality, what's an addictive personality got to do with addiction? If I have an addictive personality, and this is where I'm going to make it very simplistic, but nothing in life is ever this simplistic. <laughs> if I have an addictive personality, I want you to imagine that's like a tree trunk. Yeah, so addictive personality, tree trunk. And then it's the tree splits into two branches. One branch is imagine I have 100% healthy core beliefs, which is impossible. But just imagine I have 100% healthy core beliefs. There's something I missed a bit earlier, which is a puzzle piece that'll connect. I have a nickname for the subconscious. And that nickname for the subconscious is an egotistical brat. And why I call it an egotistical brat? Well, you want to tell us, Erica, why do we call it an egotistical brat? Because it's the ego speaking and it's, it's never necessarily coming from a place of truth. It's just there to bark at you really that's what it feels like a lot of the time yes and also right on the money it's not coming from a place of truth and it also always wants to be right it always wants to be right you can't handle being wrong so have you ever met a person where they're wrong but they can't admit it and they're just digging themselves a big hole and you're like oh yeah stop but they just keep going that's us ego talking yeah yes it's, it's like not nah, i'm right so if i have and this is i'm jumping to another puzzle piece but the tangent will continue <laughs> if i have a core cool belief that says i'm unlovable but consciously erica i think i am the shizzle i am totally lovable that's what i think consciously unconsciously i have the belief i'm unlovable if in my environment feedback is coming in that shows that i am lovable i have loving relationships consciously i'm very happy unconsciously I'm raging because that subconscious is saying, this is not okay. I need to be right. Yeah. You're not lovable. This isn't okay. 
And then it does the whole thing that we go into a bit later, which is what creates self-sabotage. So this is the core belief of I'm unlovable, clashing with reality of I am lovable. What it will do to prove that I am unlovable is it'll go on like a search and destroy mission. It'll look for an existing neuropathway I have, which we explain somewhere else, that has a sequence of where the very last neuron is where I felt unloved. And it'll look at the first neuron in that sequence, what it was, which is typically a thought, and it'll pop up that thought into my conscious mind. And that thought would be, oh, that person's lying to you. And then the second part of the sequence is we have an argument. The third part is we stop talking. And the fourth part is I feel unloved. So all it does is pop that first thought, that first neuron into my conscious mind, that person's lying to me. And then I'll most likely follow through. I have an argument. We'll stop talking. I now feel unloved. Consciously, I'm unhappy. This is not cool. I'm unloved. Unconsciously, I'm really happy. Going, see, told you I was right. So that's how the unconscious operates. And this is why we see self-sabotage. We do things yep. that harm us. This is the undercurrent. Yeah. Park that to the side. You know, back to this tree. So I have an addictive personality. I have 100% healthy core beliefs. Because I love my dopamine, I want to get my dopamine hits. Let's say I really get into work and I'm just getting dopamine through work and I'm going to achieve great things at work. But then I get lost in it, like sucks me in and all of a sudden I stop sleeping. I'm not spending time with my loved ones. So it almost looks like condition two is about to be fulfilled for an addiction. It's causing harm. Mm. However, we don't get there because as soon as harm starts to happen, my subconscious, which has a belief of I deserve health in all areas, will prove itself right. Like, no, 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 this isn't okay. You deserve health everywhere. So I'm going to pull back at work. I'll sleep better or invest time in relationships with my loved ones. Then all of a sudden I might find out that I'm getting a lot of dopamine going to the gym. I'll go really, really hard at the gym. Then work might suffer or relationships might suffer. Same thing. My subconscious, but no, this isn't okay. You deserve health in all areas. So mm. I automatically self-regulate. When you have 100% healthy core beliefs, you can't develop an addiction because it clashes with your subconscious. Yeah. So anything that doesn't align with your sub, your core beliefs, you can't actually do because that's where the egotistical brat actually helps you because it wants to be right all the time. Yeah, this this whole concept that you're explaining right now is like one of the biggest, biggest things that you've taught me. And just to sort of put a nice pretty bow on it, obviously this is just skimming the absolute surface. Like we've done months and months of sessions together and, you know, the wealth of knowledge you have is incredible. But just to sort of bring that full circle. So essentially you've got a memory from your past that basically kickstarts a core belief in life. It starts at something from a younger age in life, right? And that will develop an unhealthy or healthy core belief. It can be either or, right? These core beliefs sit in your subconscious and that subconscious, as Chantel mentioned, is basically like your ego. It always wants to be right. And so I'm sure a lot of you now are sort of wrapping your heads around and understanding that if you have majority healthy core beliefs, then when you're consciously going to do things, you can see how having that undercurrent that is supportive of you that wants to be right in those healthy core beliefs would be so conducive to getting you towards that sunrise, getting you going forward on that boat. However, if you do have those unhealthy core beliefs, they're going to clash with a lot of the things that you want for yourself. So for example, if you, you know, are finding right now that you're trying to break a habit or trying to start a new routine or want to go after a new opportunity, and you're finding that you're having all these limiting beliefs. I feel like limiting beliefs really come into this and we will have a separate conversation about that shortly. I feel like that this explains or can explain in part that 
and why there is that clash between the two. It's like your subconscious always wants to be right and will always find those avenues to prove you. So I just love this concept. And I know you've given me a very, very brief explanation. So you've, did, you've done an excellent job, I'll tell you now. <laughs> but um, I think there's so much goodness in under, just wrapping your head around that really, really briefly um, to sort of understand, I guess, our own, our own imbalance, I suppose, at, at times when we feel that conflict internally. But while we are on the topic, can you just tell me, I guess, your thoughts on limiting beliefs in and amongst this conversation? Because I feel like it's like a bit of a hot buzzword at the moment. Everyone's talking about limiting beliefs. So what do they actually mean and how do they relate to this whole conversation? I would see a limiting belief as an unhealthy belief. Yeah. So it's something that, that, that harms me. And there are some really, really common ones. So the I'm unlovable one, I'm unworthy, the world's not safe, I can't trust people. Um, I don't deserve uh, financial security. I don't deserve physical safety. Um, these are not conscious beliefs. No one would ever think this consciously, but these are things that come into the subconscious. That's what I would call a limiting belief. It's an unhealthy belief. And a rule of thumb that I like to say is how you identify it is your behaviours tell you. Your behaviours indicate what your unconscious beliefs are. Because we can't go scuba diving, put our heads under the ocean. Otherwise, it's conscious. We mm. are unconscious. But your actions will show you. So if every single time you hit your ideal weight goals, for example, and you hit your fitness goals, and you, yep, I, I got to where I want to go to. And then within a week or two, you're, you're binging or you're back to where you originally were before you started your, your health goal, whatever it may have been. Then it's showing, okay, my actions aren't aligning with what I actually want. Every mm. single time I get to six pack and it lasts for about a month and I'm back to one pack again. It's going, there is an unconscious core belief regarding my physical health. Yep. If finances, every single time I hit a certain number with my savings and then I just splurge or I may donate to a charity, which seems more of like an innocent type of splurge, but whatever I'm doing brings me back to where I started. It's showing there's a core belief there. Yep. Yeah. And I think even like, as a, like a byproduct of, behaviors you can also look at like if you're doing things like rather than the actions that follow it's also the thoughts that pop up when you do when you are like you know quote successful or hit a milestone like what kind of thoughts are popping into your head are you self-sabotaging mentally as well as like physically through your actions so I think that's really interesting to look out for in terms of your um, limiting beliefs but you did also tell me something really really interesting about limiting beliefs that's going to stay with me forever till the day I die and that was limiting beliefs are not always a bad thing, right? You were, you were telling me about yes. how limiting beliefs are like a donkey that get you to a gate. So did you want to, I don't want to butcher it, <laughs> but would you mind telling me, telling our listeners a little bit about that story? Because I think it's a really nice way to reframe our relationship with limiting beliefs instead of kind of hating on them or feeling so negative about them all the time. Yes. Yes. And I, so you especially see this in high performance. Uh, so the saying was a donkey that gets you to the gate won't get you through the gate where you can say a horse, whatever, but what the, the mode of transport that gets you to a certain place, it won't get you past a certain place. Yes. So some limiting unhealthy core beliefs can actually assist a person to achieve really great things, but then they can't go beyond them. It can be a hindrance. They have so their limits. Yeah, it has its limit. So I saw this, for example, I see this a lot, but where this was really obvious was early in my career working with an athlete where I saw a limiting belief in their, that they got from their family, we actually created an elite athlete. So it was through trying to disprove this core belief and mm. trying to prove that they, 
they're their worth because the belief was I don't have worth. That actually made them overcompensate. And there's a module we do, small man, big man. So it made the person achieve really great things. However, because it comes from a place of untruth, your nervous system can't keep up. It will end up crashing. It's not sustainable. You're not coming from a place of truth. So you can achieve great, great things, but then it has its limits. You're going to start to break down. Things are, The wheels are going to start to fall off. It's not sustainable. Mm. So there's a saying, what makes a millionaire won't make a billionaire. So it's the same thing. Things need to shift. It got you to this point, but now we need to ground ourselves in truth. Yeah. Now that we're aware of this limiting belief, it's no, it no longer serves its purpose. It served mm. its purpose. Thank you so much. You helped me. But I can now say that you're full of BS. I'm <laughs> going to ground myself in truth now. And that's when it's a new chapter. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's just really cool to understand because I think we always look at things like fear or guilt, all these things like really negatively, but in ways they kind of show us a lot about ourselves. So I, I quite like that spin on that aspect. We might move on now. I know um, I know you, you love talking about therapy and everyone listening knows I love talking about therapy as well. And so I'd love to know, in your opinion, what are two common things that people think about therapy that are not true? Okay. So one of the, the first common things that people think about therapy that is not true is that you have to be broken and a complete hot mess to reach out for counselling, which is complete what's the word malarkey <laughs> completely untrue <laughs> you can be a cold mess and go to therapy <laughs> you could be like absolutely hitting all your goals but there might be just one area of slight discontent that's not even a major issue and you can reach out for therapy what you're doing when you reach out for therapy is you're exposing yourself to tools that you can access that you may not have had exposure to before and these are tools that can regulate your nervous system. These are tools that can regulate your emotions, that can help you manage your thoughts. So it's not necessarily a breakdown moment. It can be any moment where you just find an area that, you know what, I just need some more tools. Because mm. what I find with pop culture is they can present therapy as a person goes, lies down on the couch. And they talk and the therapist in the background looks really disengaged, staring off in the distance. And the client is just there talking into the wind. That is such a misrepresentation of what happens in a therapy session. Yeah. So therapy, there is a space where it is, I'm just going to download and, and vent and get everything off my chest. And it is that safe place to do that. But more importantly, the therapist is there to provide a space where the client's nervous system regulates, where they, and what that means is the client feels safe, the client feels loved. And as their nervous system regulates, their body and their brain knows what to do. And we can just provide some tools that they may not have had before. But Absolutely. the key prior to the tools is regulation. And therapists do that with their, their skill set, with their active listening, with their eye contact, their body movements, their tonality. So it's all these little things that calm a person's nervous system down. And then you've got the toolkit. Absolutely. And I love that too. If like, you don't necessarily have to be broken, but you could also use it um, in a proactive way. Like if you know you have really big change coming up in your life, you might want to be on the proactive foot and get some tools under your belt before you actually navigate through that. So yeah, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. What's your second one? Uh-huh. I'll be psychoanalyzed. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was. Can you psychoanalyze me? <laughs> It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> you might be psychoanalyzed. Unless you go to a psychiatrist and you ask for a psychiatric assessment, you're being psychoanalyzed. Unless you're with your counselor or therapist and you're purposefully and intentionally doing a, some psychometric testing, 
other than that, you are not being psychoanalyzed. And it's what I just said a few seconds ago. It's a place of love and safety and then tools. So everything you say is not being psychoanalyzed. So it would be exhausting. So it's, <laughs> you're safe, you're good. Um, I get teased by my loved ones, but my, my catchphrase whenever I'm in therapy is, you're safe, you're loved. <laughs> <laughs> Should be your tagline, actually. <laughs> No, no, I love that too, because really, like if I talk about my therapy experience, I've just come and number one, increased my self-awareness and number two, been immensely educated. And I don't think we look at therapy as education for ourselves. You know, like we, unfortunately at school, there are no modules that teach you about yourself and how to regulate, regulate your nervous system and how to cope with adversity and all these different things. So like, be able to have that choice and if you're lucky enough to be able to do that on your own accord is an incredible opportunity you know like you're with yourself the day you die you're not with algebra you're not with essay writing till the day you die I mean I hope for nobody there (laughs) but you're with yourself so I think it's well worth well worth the investment and I think it's um great to be sort of talking about this stuff in a public forum so that you know people don't feel ashamed to reach out for tools and education yeah, exactly. You're with yourself until the day you die. Exactly what you said, Erica. So hmm. for me, the biggest investment I would ever make is in understanding myself. Love that. Now I want to ask you about something that you that came up quite a lot in our sessions. And it's a little catchphrase that I like to use myself now moving forward. It's when I'm trying to be really gentle with my own thoughts and emotions. And it's this concept of accepting your humanity. I think it's such a beautiful tagline. Um, I'm not going to take it away from you. I will, I will uh, maybe paraphrase it every so often, but I really, really like it. And I would love for you to share, I guess, the essence of it, what it means and how people can really connect to it to just, you know, be gentle with themselves or just help them when they're, you know, coming into acceptance, I feel. When we look at, I was going to say high performers, but a lot of us struggle with this. There's, and I'm glad that we touched on core beliefs because it does come from this place. There's an unhealthy core belief that's really, really common in our society uh, to do with self-worth and self-value and output and achievement and perfectionism. They get something perfect, I'm perfect. If things are really good, I am good. And this isn't just upbringing, this is schooling, this is our culture, this is our society. Like we're, we're given this message everywhere. So it's almost impossible not to have this core belief. Um, and that can create a lot of anxiety. Um, that can create a lot of dis- like disturbance and distress interiorly and a lot of pressure to always be perfect and have no flaws, which is not human. It's actually not possible. So the way that we have to approach this whenever I say accept your humanity is really playfully initially because it's such a, a sore point for most of us because we do, uh, it, it hurts when we see flaws and we have this belief of I'm supposed to be perfect. And if someone says that I'm not, I'll either be abandoned or I'm loved or I'm less than. And these are unconscious cognitions. They're not as obvious. Um, so if someone says, oh, I didn't do this or I saw this, it's approaching it playfully and going, I didn't know that you were God. <laughs> In a really like lighthearted manner, going, oh, I didn't know that I was chatting with someone that was, you know, completely like perfect and no flaws and wow I can't how do you how do you do that are you god so it's this really like playful approach to to look at the absurdity of that belief okay this is actually absurd like there's no way that we we can be this this ideal that we think we're supposed to be that it's not human 
Yeah, perfectionist. We're talking to you, perfectionist. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know we feel it in our bodies, but it's an absurd belief. It's so far from the truth. So if we look at our humanity, accepting your humanity, you are a human being. You have weaknesses. You have areas that we need to strengthen. You have areas that will never be strengthened. It's just part of your character and that's okay. And it's accepting that. It's, a, it's viewing your body as it was your child. And if you had a daughter, if you had a son, how would you be treating them? How much love would you be showing them? Would you be having these really unrealistic expectations? What is life about? Mm. So it's treating yourself gently, treating yourself kindly. Uh, and also I think this comes, Erica, with the psych education that, that you do with understanding your brain and that there's a part of it that is your, your deep mammalian animal brain that you can't cognitively control. It has its own... It has its own brain, really. It has its own life, and you can understand it and try and tame it and calm it down. But we're animals. When you have that acceptance and that love, and going, okay, I get that. I get that. I understand it. I'm going to help. I'm going to calm it down. Mm. And accepting your humanity for me, it's freeing. It's going, okay, I'm not going to be Hitler to myself. Why am I going to do that? It's not helping me in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the point you just raised about our value not being dependent on our output and you're not the first person to sort of say that on the podcast and I'm bringing it up again because I feel like that has such a negative impact on our balance on the way we feel about ourselves and our lives we we constantly are stuck in this guilt loop otherwise and we feel like our value or our stuff up sort of inhibiting how we show up in the world and that I think is so much has so much more of an effect on the way we show up than what we talk about. And so I think this gentle reminder, accepting your humanity, that, you know, you are a human and a byproduct of that is you're not perfect and you cannot be perfect is exactly what you said. It's such a freeing concept. And so, yeah, I just wanted to chat a little bit about it because whenever you've sort of said it, it's stuck in my head and I try and remind myself of that in days where I feel disappointment or guilt sort of creeping in or I'm, you know, trying to do better or whatever the case may be. I think it's such a nice, gentle reminder and plays a nice role in our balance as well. Yes, yes. And with the emotions that you gave, it's also that knowledge and going, we can't control the emotions that come up. They're like the weather. And we yeah. can't control the 75,000 thoughts we have a day as well. They're just random. They're not from us. So yeah. that's when you treat yourself so much more gently. When you go, oh, it's not me. I'm just the observer. I'm experiencing this. I'm not creating this. Yep, Absolutely. Now, there's another story. I mean, I really had to narrow this down because there were so many notes I had to to cipher through. So everyone, I'm giving you that, trying to give you the absolute highlights real here. There was a great story you told me about the two wolves. And I think it has such a great message to tell us about our thoughts, right? And I think it's so easy to think my thoughts are me. It's in my head. It's truth. It's who I am. But recently I've sort of come to this place where I think, okay, just because I have a thought doesn't mean I need to believe it, you know, and the way you feed a thought or play into a thought will then determine how it has a hold on your life or your balance or your relationships or your health, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love if you could share that story and then maybe we can just have a chat about that in the context of thoughts. Yeah, definitely. So with uh, the two wolves, this the really cool thing with the two wolves, just like when you look at legends, parables, myths, like in ancient cultures and stuff, and you go, oh, that's got a nice, a nice model of the story to it. And then science happens and it shows the science behind this moral, like this legend or 
or parable or myth and you go, oh, wow, there was so much wisdom there and now science shows that they were actually talking about this. Mm. The reason I love the two wolves is it describes neurology. It describes what the heck's happening in our brains. And this is an ancient legend from the Native Americans. And I don't think they understood anything about neuroscience back then, but there was very <laughs> deep wisdom, which neuroscience is now showing up. This is what they're actually talking about. So I'm going to tell you the two wolf story. Uh, there's a little Cherokee and he's sitting around a campfire with all these little friends and the chief is his granddad. And he looks up at his granddad and, and okay, little side disclaimer, you guys have probably heard this story in different different ways because it's everywhere. And he looks up at his granddad and he goes, chief, tell us a story. I want to hear a story. So the chief looks at all the little Cherokees and he goes, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Inside every single human being, there live two wolves. There's a black wolf. And this black wolf represents everything that's harmful to the human person, be it feelings of greed, inferiority, anger, jealousy, et cetera, et cetera. And the white wolf, there's a white wolf. And this white wolf, he represents everything that's helpful to the human being, being love, generosity, kindness, gratitude, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these two wolves, they're constantly at war. They're always fighting each other. And his little grandson looks up at him and he's like, which wolf wins? And the granddad looks down and the one you feed. It's a very simple answer. The one you feed. And the reason I find this to be perfect with neurology is we have neuropathways, things that we feed. And the neuropathway that I feed will win. The neuropathway that I starve will die. So if we're looking at behaviours that are harming us, if we're looking at thought processes, and it always does start with an initial thought that comes up. I don't feed it. I can't control it starting. A random thought you actually can't control. If I don't feed it, it will die off. What I do feed gets stronger and wins. So another analogy to lay on top of that, it's like a field of wheat. If you walk down the same path, you're going to flatten and it becomes the path of least resistance. But if you find that that path leads somewhere really unpleasant, stop walking down that path. Mm. It's not helping you form a new pathway. This will have resistance because it hasn't been formed yet but keep pushing through until this path flattens. The other, don't walk down it. The part of the wheat will come back up. If you walk down both at the same time, they're going to be the two wolves constantly fighting. You're yep. just in a state of constant, in, in a battle. Yep. So starve the black wolf, feed the white. Yeah. And the reason I love that you've layered the wheat analogy on top is because it really gives this visual that you will have to walk that path quite a few times before it fully flattens. And yes. the other one will take time to sort of go away entirely. And I think that that is, is an important thing to acknowledge because it's very easy for, for us to sit here and go, okay, you've got a thought, don't feed it. You know, like once it, it's a neural pathway in your mind, it's automatic almost. It's not as simple as, oh, I'm just not going to think about it. It's something we have to consciously work out like a muscle to keep going and doing. So I like that you've layered the wheat one on top because it shows that that is a time thing and it has to be. Yes a continuum of effort. But on that note, and I, I mean, I know that a lot of education and therapy is something that can really be useful in, in sort of aiding that process. But do you have any quick tips or just couple things that people can do if they are struggling with thoughts that they could do like momentarily to help them sort of start the process? Yeah. So this is a tool. I like to call it a word vomit. So it's not journaling. 
it's just word vomit. So imagine you get takeaway, there's something in it that shouldn't be in it and you're really, really sick. You end up running to the bathroom and it all comes out. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel when it all comes out? Usually a lot better. You don't force yourself to throw up. This is if you have a bug and it comes up naturally. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> so same thing. If we have a lot of thoughts that are just buzzing around in our heads, word vomit. Either take out a notepad, take out notes in your phone or even voice memo and just dump. Don't journal. Journaling is pretty it's edited, you think about it. With word vomiting, you just dump it out. Words, emotions, even mash your keyboard if you need to, even random noises, just get it out. Whatever's in there, get it out. That's word vomiting. Another one is using visuals. And Eric, would you like me to give the three visuals or pick one? You know, the tennis yes. player, the pads or the card. Do you want all three or should I just give one of them? Um, I reckon give the tennis one. I think that's a good one. Yeah, that's my favorite one too. Me too. So, they used to think we had 10,000 thoughts a day. Now science is showing us we have 75,000 thoughts a day. Hell of a lot of thoughts. They are not us. So the key is to remember we are not our thoughts and we can use a visual to help create that separation. So a visual I like to use is just imagine there's a tennis player and he's on a court and there are 75,000 tennis balls flying at his head. How would the tennis ball player be feeling, Erica? So overwhelmed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now there's a tennis umpire in the scene. Where is he sitting? He's sitting above the tennis court looking over it. Yes. And from his vantage point, how does he feel seeing the 75,000 tennis balls going by down there? He's probably not as overwhelmed. He's probably more amused and just observing. Yeah. So, yeah, depending if you might find it funny or it might feel really <laughs> bad for the player, but nowhere near the level of overwhelm. He's sitting up there, he's calmer. Does he, is he able to judge the speed of the balls and the distance and where they're going more accurately than the player? Can from his vantage point. I'd say yes. Yeah, he has a bird's eye view, so he sees more clearly, he has more perspective too. So not only does he feel calmer, he can actually see more clearly too. So mm -hmm. now what we do with this visual is if I feel like I am being the tennis player, I'm being bombarded with thoughts, I close my eyes, I imagine that I am climbing up the rungs to that chair and I'm sitting in the tennis umpire's seat and I'm observing every tennis ball as a thought. So every thought becomes a little tennis ball and they're down this small and they're going by me. They're not coming at me. Mm. I'm sitting up in the tennis umpire's chair. Every thought is a little tennis ball and they're going by, they're not coming at me. That's a visual you can do. Now yeah. that's when you're looking at thoughts. But a lot of the times when we have racing thoughts, Erica, our nervous system is dysregulated. We may be in our sympathetic nervous system, which is where our fight and flight lives. So in addition to that, a quick thing to calm down your body to make it more regular, you can use a few hacks as well to bring you into fancy words, your parasympathetic nervous system. So this is more not preventative. This is more treatment, I guess, as soon as it actually Reactive. happens. Yeah. Yes, yes. So one way is to do breathing where you do a quick in-breath and then you do a really long out-breath. And this is my therapy supervisor taught me this one, blowing up a balloon. So you go, and really long out breath just quick in really long out breath don't do it for three seconds do it for a good five minutes so if we do it twice and it's not working so keep going <laughs> for a good five minutes another thing is called there are so many parasympathetic hacks that science is showing us that's so cool but one is called softening your focus so you notice if you're sitting on a train you've been staring at someone for an hour because you've been daydreaming that's called softening your focus so your eyes are resting somewhere but you're not really focused hmm. so if anyone's listening to this look anywhere around the room right now just that anything, and then just lose your focus, soften your focus. That triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. 
This is a favorite of mine. Fake yawning. Oh. <laughs> Do three fake yawns. Oh. And now focus on how's my body feel? It will feel really, really relaxed. So you've got some parasympathetic hacks in the moment. Yeah. But prevention-wise, to stay there, you can tell us, Erica, what helps with prevention for your parasympathetic nervous system. Well, you could try diaphragmatic breathing on a daily basis. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so Chantel was telling me about diaphragmatic breathing, which, which essentially is in the first instance, it's breathing through the whole of your, uh, what's the midsection, your core. So not only are you imagining sort of your stomach being pushed out, but I also like to think of like the air going to the back of my spine as well. So it's like this whole round your body breath. And the idea is to breathe out for four, hold for four at the top and then release for four, no rest of the bottom and do that for five to 15 minutes every day. And Chantel was telling me some really cool science that's currently showing that if you do that for a minimum of 15 days straight, there's evidence showing that you can stay in parasympathetic just on autopilot for a prolonged period after that, depending on your body type, which is pretty cool. Like all you need to do is sort of do that diaphragmatic breathing on a daily basis to activate your parasympathetic for the whole day, which obviously helps with that regulation of your nervous system for the entire day. And that kind of helps in and of itself when thoughts come up, they don't, well, they may still trigger you, but, you know, I think if you're predisposed to being in parasympathetic, it has a different effect on your body. Yes. You're in your window of tolerance. Everything's much more manageable. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I'm I'm a good student, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) You're an author. I do my homework. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love it. That's right. That's right. And and really, I do think that a lot of when we talk about balance, whether it's diet, whether it's exercise, whether it's, you know, doing things for your mind, if you can do anything for prevention, it's a lot easier than when you have to react to something, you know, being proactive rather than reactive is always, always my go-to. But I really love that story with the two wolves. It's such a simple one. That's so powerful. Like really, when you think about it, the thought you feed will grow. And yes. so- if you're not liking thoughts you're having, if they're disturbing you, if they're frustrating you, if they're stopping you in your tracks, have a look and see uh, in what ways you can manage those thoughts better. How can you better help your mind, you know, not make that pathway stronger, not keep walking that path of least resistance? How can you, you know, help your body and mind sort of create new thoughts? Yeah, so, and you have the ability to dismiss that thought. You don't have to go into it. So mm-hmm. if you have a random thought that says, what am I going to eat for dinner? while you're in a conversation with the person, you can't control that thought. You mm. can dismiss it. Yes. If you go into the thought and you're going, oh, yeah, I'm going to make some lasagna, then that's engaging a thought. You've just fed whichever. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of controlling and managing thoughts, you don't have to engage in every thought. You can dismiss them. Yeah. And I think a nice way to understand that is like, say, for example, one like the tennis visual, which shows you that you are removed and you can be the observer. Because I think a lot of the time people say observe your thoughts. It's really confusing, especially if you're really you know, it's in your head. It feels like it's you talking to yourself. But I feel like if you really practice those visualizations and I'm in practice, like you've got to be persistent with it. You can't just do it twice and go, well, this, this isn't for me. Like you've got to be persistent with it to really get the picture, I guess, or the feeling that you are not your thoughts. But I really also like using the inside out movie as an analogy and thinking I've literally got those emojis in my head. And so when I feel those things, I feel as though I'm visually seeing those emojis, which helps me kind of personify those, you know, in a way that's not, not me. So whatever works for you, I suppose, but visualization is a great way to do that. 
Yes. And also an exercise to be done daily. What, what do I have everyone do as well to exercise the mind and be able to observe thoughts? What app do I have them download on their phone? Headspace. And luckily I already had it subscribed, yearly <laughs> subscription, ready to go. <laughs> Just the basics. and Because with um, mindfulness, some people think, oh, if I'm meditating, I can't have any thoughts. When an empty mind is going, no, you don't want to go there. Like do, Again, different schools of thoughts. Let your mind be as busy as, as whatever. But in the headspace, I have everyone do a minimum of five minutes in the morning of, or in the evening, but some point in the day at least five minutes where you're just practicing, observing what my mind does. So it will say focus on your breath, et cetera. But then you notice, oh, my mind just went down this random tangent of what I was going to do on the weekend or or who I need to contact or whatever it might be. And going, oh, that was interesting. So you don't need to control it, just observe it. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely, daily practice or regular practice is what will get you there. Now, I know we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but I think that's all we've got time for today. If people have loved this chat, want to engage with you a little bit further, maybe want to chat to you about doing some education and work with you, where's the best place that they can reach out? And I'll pop links in the show notes below. So you feel free to contact me via my email, which is Chantel, funny spelling this, C-H-A-N-T-A-L-E at Chantel Marie, C-H-A-N-T-A-L-E-M-A-R-I-E.com. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I'll pop that below so no one has to memorize that because it is a unique spelling. (laughs) But I do want to thank you not only for your time today, but everything you've taught me along the way. You've become a really key person in, you know, my 2021. And I can't thank you enough for everything you shared today. I know everyone would have gotten so much out of it. And I'm looking forward to continue to work with you. So thank you. Thank you, Erica, for inviting me on and to be a guest and chat with all your listeners. And thank you for being an amazing person to connect with and for having the privilege of being part of your journey and continuing to be part of your journey. You're an absolute star. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap for this week, Balancers. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you found this episode useful to some degree in either steering or determining your definition of balance today. As always, the biggest compliment for us is if you share this episode with someone who you feel might need it, or if you're on Spotify, you can click follow or on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating or review. If you have any suggestions for up and coming podcasts, feel free to shoot us a DM or an email. Our Instagram is at the balance theory and our email is the balance theory podcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, you've always got the option of subscribing to our mailing list. We only send you email reminders when the episodes drop so you get them fresh out of the oven. No annoying spam, we promise. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and until next time, stay balanced. Stop, 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 stop.